HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. My Family Recipe is a new podcast from Food52 and Heritage Radio Network, bringing you cherished heirloom recipes and the stories behind them. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to Japan Needs. I'm your host, Aki Kodema, a food writer and the director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deep understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from Brooklyn, New York. And this show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every day in the supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi, ramen, isakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food still is a mystery for many people, and I try to demystify it in this program with my good guests. And my guests today are Mark Isbell and Chris Isbell of Isbell Farms in Arkansas. Isbell Farms has been always forward-minded and played an important role as a strong supporter of the American sake industry. Isbell Farms is a multi-generational family farm with a focus on the sustainable production of quality rice. And also, Isbel is the first American farm that produced sakamai, which means Japanese rice varieties developed specifically for sake production. And there are approximately 25 sake breweries in the U.S., and it is very exciting to see that number has been increasing. And these breweries often use cow roast rice, which is a table rice, because sake rice is not readily available in this country. And while Sakawas has proven to be a right variety to produce high-quality sake, there is a solid demand for sake rice among American brewers. So today we'll discuss how a family farm in Arkansas started to grow Japanese rice, the types of sake rice they grow, a pioneering sake rice, uh, sake rice variety they have just developed, and much, much more. But before you start, Japanese is available on the Heritage Radio Network website, as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. So please go to iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify, whichever you listen to, and subscribe to Japanese. And please write a review. We really appreciate your feedback. Now, let's start a conversation with Mark Isbell and Chris Isbell. Welcome. Hi, Akiko. Nice to meet you. All right. So this is Mark and, and Chris. Thank you for inviting us to do this. We're excited about it. Yeah, so uh, so Mark is Chris's son, and Chris has a very exciting story who started all everything. So we'll dig into that in a moment. But um, and also I have been hearing about 
uh, is Bell Farm's name from different people. Uh, for example, Andrew Santofante of North American Sake Brewery joined us in episode 219 and said he uses your rice. And、uh, Brandon Dong,、uh, the brewmaster of Brooklyn Cook, kindly introduced us to you. So,、uh, so I'm very excited to have you here today. Thank you. Yeah, so thank you. And so tell us about your farm first. So, what is the history of Isabel Farms? Well, long ago, my great grandfather,、um, he was in the lumber business. He had、uh, sawmills. He had like six sons and, and、uh, five sawmills. And so,、uh, as they cleared the land, they、uh, planted cotton. So, that was the first generation in Arkansas. Of the farmers, and then my granddad came along and he grew cotton. My dad, after he got out of the Navy after World War II, he started growing rice. So that's three, and I'm four, fourth generation. Mark would be fifth, and a, a grandson that、uh, is working on the farm. So that'd be six.、Um, mm. So we've been, we've been doing this for quite a while. Wow. Right. And then、uh, just to get the idea of your wealth of experience in growing rice, so what types of rice、uh, have you grown other than sake rice? Yeah. So,、um, you know, first off,、um, we're sitting here in the, the center of Arkansas, and Arkansas is actually the largest rice growing state in the United States, with、um, over half of the rice in the U.S. is grown here in, the Arkansas, in Arkansas, with a substantial、um, other amount grown in the adjacent states. So, the Mid South is typically known for long grain varieties, which you'll find、um, in the supermarket and a number of dishes at restaurants. And that sort of、um, fills the primary role on the land here as the go to crop. And so, we have grown a lot of long grain in the past, and、um, we continue to grow some for those markets as well.、Um, but years ago, and my dad can speak more to this, we started growing Japanese rice in the early 90s. When I was just a kid, and that started with the Kashiokari, which eventually led us to the sake varieties that we grow today. And I'll let my dad speak more to the, the details of that experience.、Mm. Okay, so yeah, so I heard that you were the very first Japanese rice farm that made、um, the premium Koshikari variety in the US, and people thought it was impossible, but did it. So, <laughs> so when and how did you start growing Japanese rice?、Uh, I've, I've always been curious and、um, I like any kind of research or anything like that I'm interested in. And so I, I found myself in a, a research,、um, a group of researchers in、uh, Davis, California, or at Davis University of Sacramento.、Um, and there in the group of those researchers was a Japanese gentleman, I'm a, an economist. Rice economist, and we, we struck up a conversation. and He was telling me that、uh, about Koshi Hikari, and, and of course, in the United States, you know, there's not really that much differentiation between、uh, which rice tastes the best. I mean, it's you know, the long grain varieties are, are mostly just they're all the same. And,、um, so, I, like I said, I'm curious. And、uh, he's explaining this to me, and he says, and, and by the way, he said, <laughs> It only grows in, it will only grow in Japan. And、um, so this was before the internet, before anything like that. So I, go, I come home and I get my globe 
off the table and I line up the latitude uh, of Arkansas and Japan and sure enough we're right on the same latitude and I thought well I bet I bet it will grow in the United States mm. and so we secured some seed just to try it and uh, sure enough it grew quite well uh, it was a lot more difficult to grow and harvest than our, our regular varieties but uh, it's the same way in Japan. It's uh, uh, difficult to harvest, that sort of thing. But mm. the curiosity and stubbornness, I guess, <laughs> <laughs> is what started it all. Mm. Right. Well, this is very impressive because, you know, you are busy farming and just grow things and harvest, but you went to that research um, conference or yeah. some kind of function, which is... Very impressive how curious you are. Well, I was the only farmer there. Um, when, I, <laughs> when, I, when I walked in, they said, who are you with? And I said, I'm just, I'm a, I'm a rice farmer. And so they gave mm. me a tag that said grower. And I uh, wore oh. that tag around and all the researchers wanted to talk to me. And it was kind of like they'd never spoken with a farmer, a real farmer before. Right. So do you think it's changed now? More actual growers and participate in that kind of academic research? The, I haven't been to one in uh, two or three years, um, but I don't think so. I think that there are very few growers that actually attend those. Mm. Right. That's interesting. Okay. And uh, so I heard that the U rice was eventually sold in Japan uh, through the major convenience store chain called Family Mart. So, right. yeah, it does. <laughs> I mean, when I grew up, uh, Japanese rice has to be from Japan. That's like so sacred that <laughs> the one I heard about that it's, it's impossible, like some miracle happened. So, yeah, but how did you get into the Japanese market? Well, like you said at the beginning, um, somehow the other Japanese people thought that it was impossible to grow koshikari outside of Japan. And we didn't realize that when we started growing it. Uh, we just, we grew it and managed to find someone that was willing to do a taste test and uh, a trading company. It was a Nishimoto trading company out of Los Angeles. And they wanted to start marketing it here in the U.S. And uh, the Japanese Americans, the Japanese visitors that are here in the U.S. Uh, became very excited about it. So it was, it got to be popular but um, it was also um, all of the Japanese uh, media became very interested in it. Uh, I never did. I still to this day really don't understand why uh, it was such a big deal. But, I mean, we had every, every media outlet in Japan, I believe, has been to the farm. And, mm. um, you know, magazines and newspapers and television stations and, the NHK even came and did a 90-minute documentary. They followed us through the whole year of uh, growing the rice and selling the rice. And um, So the kids grew up in an atmosphere where we had um, limousines and helicopters and Greyhound buses with tour uh, Japanese tourists, um, hundreds and hundreds of, uh, you know, media here on the farm and uh we're we're just uh, simple country people 
and but but we became um, we became unisolated and uh, more in tune to the uh, global community. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was really an eye opener for me and for my wife and the, and the kids. Like I said, grew up in that, and so they they're more attuned to that today than I am even. Mm, wow. Yeah, I'm sure it's as eye-opening as um, you felt uh, among Japanese people too, because like I said, you know, you kind of created a good earthquake. Oh, the Japanese rice can be grown <laughs> outside of Japan. So, right. And um, so uh, since then, I heard you cultivated sake rice for over 20 years, and now your focus has been, um, you know, that's shifted. From Japanese table rice, which is koshihikari you started with, to sake rice. So, how did you get into sake rice production? Well, it was kind of a natural extension. Um, I I was taught oh, probably thirty five years ago how to do crosses and you know, with different varieties, and that's part of the curiosity part of my psyche. But um, we have. Uh, we still to this day have uh, uh, plots where we do experiments on different rices, different different sorts of things. We we do a lot of experimentation here, and uh, so Japanese varieties. Once we had the koshihikari, where we started looking at other varieties, and we at one time we had forty, I think forty different varieties growing in our experimental plots. One of those was Yamada Nishiki. Uh, we didn't know what Yamada Nishiki was exactly. We were just growing the rice to look at it agronomically to see if it, you know, it was something that we could grow easily enough, and uh, it was not. <laughs> so, mm. But we took that row and we harvested it and uh, put that in the freezer. And then uh, years later, we were contacted uh, to see if we had. I got a call from Takara out of. Uh, Berkeley, California, and they yeah. asked me if I had Yamada Nishiki, and I said we did, and they were excited, so they wanted us to grow some for them to for trials, and so that's where it started with them. Mm-hmm. Right. So for listeners who's not familiar with Takara, Takara is a uh, you know uh, the Japanese sake producer uh, headquartered in Japan, but they have um, big production facility in California, I believe, yes. and. Uh, yeah, so I'm sure that again, like koshihikari, you know, sake rice is too hard to grow in America. And then mm-hmm. obviously you did it again. So, yeah, that's amazing. So um, so then how, what kind of sake rice uh, do you grow outside other than uh, Yamada Nishiki? We have omachi that we're currently, uh, there are some breweries that are doing some experimentation with and uh, been really successful with that. Uh, we also have Watari Bune and uh, Goyakamandoku. Mm, wow, so the major uh, big hitters. So, uh, by the way, Yamada Nishiki is um, for, it's known for being difficult to grow because it gets tall, but that's kind of like a rich flavor. I heard about 35% of whole rice, I mean, the sake is made with Yamada Nishiki. And so it's like quintessential, ideal um, rice. And the reason is that, um, oh, maybe you can talk about the difference between sake rice 
and uh, you know, table rice. What is the difference? Well, the the Yamada Nishiki has a chalky center, which they call the shimpaku, and uh, that once you've milled the rice down to fifty percent or more, um, I as I understand it, that porosity of the grain allows the koji mold to penetrate completely and, um, you know, and, start, and turn the starches into sugar. Um, I, all of that intrigues me because I'm curious. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> Is that by your nature? Like, since you're uh, born, you're so curious like that? <laughs> I guess so. I guess so. My dad, my dad told me one time I needed to stop dreaming. I said, well, you might as well just do away with me because I... <laughs> <laughs> if I have to stop dreaming, I don't think I want to live anymore. But, right. uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there about, I heard it got over like 100 types of sake, sake rice variety. So you have like a way more to go, like 90 more to <laughs> keep experimenting. Right. Um, okay. And uh, so um, actually, by the way, the Brandon um, Don of Fukunkura said uh, he you know, he, he uses kaulos, uh rice to make sake. And it tends to have a bigger taste and more mummy than sake rice, like Yamada Nishiki, um, probably because of the higher protein content, like Chris just said. And um, I heard he recently ordered your omachi rice. Is that right? Mark can speak to that better than I can. Yes, so he they made a, um, a good batch of omachi-based sake back... Um, earlier in the year that we had the opportunity to taste test and it was it was certainly fantastic i was very glad to to see they've got a great brewery there and doing some excellent work and we look forward to doing more work with Ilmachi with them mm, right so how does it work so you work with um breweries and ask um you know like you just give them a trial batch like some grains, and then they try make sake, and if they like it, they order. Well, how does it work? If I was a brewer, how can I ask you to grow something? Sure. So, uh, as you are aware, the um, you know the process for milling sake mai is a bit more involved than milling table rice, and so depending on the milling ratio needed, um, you know, we send that rice from here in Arkansas where it's milled to ninety percent or about table rice standards. And we send that up to Blake Richardson in uh, Minnesota, who has a sake mill there, and we work closely with him to then distribute that out to the craft brewers around the United States. And um, so we maintain relationships with a number of those craft brewers um, as well as as he does as well. Um, But yeah, when someone wants to try something like that, we're more than happy to provide a sample um, and get that to them and, and try it out. Mm, right. Yeah. By the way, Blake Richardson, I, I am hoping to have him on the show sometime soon because he, he is a sake brewer and a motoi a sake brewery. And also he is an expert milling um, sake rice, which is, I think, is he the only one who can do that kind of uh, milling, sake specific milling in this country? Certainly the only one east of the Rockies. I know there are some California breweries that do mill um, sake rice. Um, but he's he's the one here east of the Rockies that that currently does that. And yeah, Blake is incredibly knowledgeable, a very good person. And um, he started his journey with sake back long before the um, 
it became in vogue here in the United States as it seems to have done more recently. And I think he's a, a large contributor to the, um, you know, to the good trajectory that Saki has here in the United States now. Mm, right. Okay. And by the way, you know, because um, you said that it's, it's a little harder to grow Yamada Nishiki. And, you know, so what is the difference between sake rice table rice in terms of the farming process? Like, is, is sake rice harder to grow? You want me to take that, Mark? Um, sure. I'll be <laughs> glad to add some as well, but I'll let you, um, I'll let you talk about our experiences harvesting this year, which were um, certainly none too easy. Um, it's, um, I mean, it's rice and we plant it, you know, uh, and grow it, get it started off. But, but there are subtleties that we, we look at. We, want, we don't want the protein level to be very high. And so we, um, we alter our, you know, our nutrient inputs based on that. Um, and it does grow really tall. Uh, it's extremely hard to harvest, but fortunately, our history has given us uh, some skills in doing that. We have the machinery, our combines and everything are, are purchased with the idea that the, the crop is going to be difficult to, to harvest. And so we have the headers, the uh, uh, things like that. Most people, most people don't have those, but we are set up to harvest uh, difficult varieties. My dad, um, we started out with a, a variety that was called Arc Rose, which is akin to Cow Rose. Um, and in those days, that Arc Rose was extremely tall and difficult to harvest. And so I've kind of cut my teeth on, <laughs> on difficult varieties. But Yamada Nishiki does have its own little special uh, problems. Uh, the, mm. the straw is very wiry, wants to wrap around everything it touches on the combine. And so we've, we've had, um, you know, some trials and errors, but um, it's, I mean, it's doable and uh, we, we do it and we'll continue to do it. Mm. Right. And uh, what about the other varieties? Because what I heard, like omachi, uh, if you look for some like very strong rice uh, rich flavor, that's omachi. Uh, versus Yamada Nishiki, it's more like a fragrance. But um, you have Gohyaku Mangoku, that's like a Niigata-specific, very light, um, airy kind of sake style. And the Wataribune is a, is a parent of Yamada Nishiki. All those, each of uh, sake rice has a very specific personality. So um, do which one is the hardest? Is Yamada Nishiki the hardest? Uh, Mark, you... Yeah, so I mean Yamada Nishiki is the one that we've grown at the greatest scale at this point. And um to date I would definitely say it's um it's most difficult. The other thing that really drives the difficulty in working with um with specialty products like that is that we do have to maintain our own seed production. So we we have to think not only of what will the market need for production this year, but what might the market need three years from now that we need to be producing? And then when you're managing multiple varieties, you also have to be able to keep those clean and distinct and separate from one another in storage and um, in production. So there are a number of challenges that come just out of that. Mm, right. 
Um, so are there many uh, breweries interested in each of those sake rice varieties? So far, the Omachi is the one that we've received the most inquiries about, and um, it's something we've still done at, at quite a small level when compared to the Yamada. Um, but we've certainly started to get interest in the other ones. Um, we don't have a large amount of the other ones to distribute yet. Um, but as we see the desire for those grow, we'll certainly, we'll certainly begin to scale those further. Hmm. Interesting. Do you know why they like Gomachi uh, more than Yamada Nishiki? You know, I think primarily the, the marketplace was just ready to try something new. Um, you know, so much, so much of the um, basic sake out there for, for years has been made from cow rows, and they've done quite a good job of it. There are a lot of artisans out there that take that and do, do really good work. Um, the Yamada Nishiki comes, um, comes on the scene, and that provides something new um, that's also very old that they can latch onto and, and practice their art. But, um, you know, just like any artist, a new canvas creates new opportunities. And the Omachi provides that um, new canvas for some of these brewers. Mm, right. Interesting. I can't wait to see more new products uh, using your rice. That could be very interesting, a diversity of uh, the flavors made in America. So, yeah. So um, how many customers do you have, by the way, right now? So um, that's a hard question to answer exactly because a lot of the craft brewing um, distribution um, that we do does go through Blake. and um, But I can say that it has certainly grown in the past couple of years. And, um, you know, when you're talking sizable customers, those um, you could count on one hand. But um, when you talk about those who are making small batches, everything from homebrew up to um, – you know, up to some craft brewers, local breweries, um, you know, that, that becomes more substantial and we see mm-hmm. growth in both number and volume. And what's really interesting from our um, vantage point is we get to see these home brewers begin to inquire and gain interest. And, you know, a few years later, you might see those develop into something even more. And so it's it's been an interesting perspective to watch the industry grow Um you know, over the last few years, just from the vantage point of, you know, providing them with their, with their rice. Right. Interesting. Yeah. In this country, you can home brew, not in Japan. So <laughs> maybe I should consider studying my own <laughs> sake brewing at home. Uh, so I'll contact you. Um, so, but are there any farms doing, um, I mean, producing sake rice in the U.S. right now? So here in Arkansas, definitely not, um, certainly that I'm not aware of. There is a company out of California um, that works with with some farmers, I suppose, um, to create um, some other sake varieties. I'm not sure how widely they distribute or what the details are on that. Um, but um, it's certainly no more than a handful in the United States. And um, east of the Rockies, as far as I know, um, we were the only ones. Mm, right. Well, Japan is a very long, uh, vertically long country, but is Arkansas suited to grow Japanese sake rice, you think? So I, I was, um, I know the answer to be yes, because, um, you know, we've, we have grown it and um, we've, 
been able to work with some excellent brewers who've created some fantastic um, sakes out of it from, um, you know, from Blake there in Minnesota to, um, to Cara, to Saki One, who, who created a fantastic sake here this past summer, um, and a whole lot of others that I've, I've um, you know, I, I hate to try to list any because I can't list all of the ones, but they're doing some great work. But, um, you know, by, by experience, I can say, yes, it is a great place. But then also my curiosity, which I suppose I got from my father, kicks in as well. And I want to know why is that? And so, um, whereas he said he picked up a globe years ago to, to make that connection, times have changed a bit. So I pulled up Google Earth and started looking at the latitudes instead, which, which um, allowed me to fairly easily strike a line across the map. And our farm is located um, almost at the identical latitude of Hyogo. And mm. so um, there's a lot of climactic, climatic um, issues that we have in common. It's not exactly the same, but, um, you know, if, if not perfectly scientifically, at least poetically, I believe there's some truth into the fact that that, um, that means something about, um, what can be done with, with Saki Rossi. Right. Well, the Hyogo prefecture is the home of Yamada Nishiki. <laughs> and also Omachi is close. It's from Okayama prefecture, which is close to Hyogo. So yeah, that totally makes sense. Okay. Uh, so we'll take a quick break here, and when we come back, we'll discuss the new variety of sake rice Isabel Farms has recently developed. So please stay with us. Good food is worth a thousand words. This is Arthi Menon, and I'm delighted to share a new podcast with you, My Family Recipe, from Food52 and Heritage Radio Network. Adapted from Food 52's much-loved column of the same name, the My Family Recipe podcast will bring its pages to life. Each episode of My Family Recipe brings you a cherished heirloom recipe and the story behind it, from voices across the world of food. We'd open these tubs of dough and they would exhaust these incredible yeasty fumes and it just smelled like nothing else. It was so intoxicating. I'll interview writers and chefs, parents and children, about what's passed down along with the foods that we know and love. Chinese people aren't like born with a download on how to like velvet chicken. You know, like that's not something that just like comes to you. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. You're listening to Japan Eats. I'm your host, Akiko Atema, and my guests today are Mark and Chris Isabel of Isabel Farms in Arkansas. Uh, the multi-generational family farm sustainably produces Japanese sake rice, which is extremely hard to find in America. So, uh, so let's. I'm just very excited to talk, discuss this. So I heard that you have developed a new sake variety called Somai. So could you tell us uh, what it is and why you developed it? So yeah, I'll be glad to take that. Um, I do want to be clear, um, while we have done a lot of research and a lot of development in varieties um, here on the farm, um, the soma is actually derived from a, um, a southern medium grain um, that was initially developed out of our university, much like the Calrose varieties in, um, in California are, um, are developed there in their um, research stations and such. And so what we've done is, is identify that and adapt that to use in sake. We figured 
um, if if other medium grains from other parts of the world, which this is a medium grain, have utility and and potential as um, sake rice, then perhaps this one will as well. And so we began experimenting with that first with Blake, and he made a really good batch with it. And then um, we began distributing that even wider um, more recently with the knowledge that um, our um, kind of our heart and soul when it comes to um, growing sake rice is focused on the Yamada Nishiki and the premium varieties. But we realize that the marketplace out there has um, has a need for more cost-effective solutions for other sakes that can still be very good um, without necessarily um, being the his, using the historical grains like Yamada Nishiki and falling in that um, distinct top tier. And so the SOMI um, is our answer to that so that we can provide our customers with, first of all, the really high quality stuff, but also this very good quality stuff that um, also provides another canvas that um, I think a number of brewers out there are just doing a fantastic job with. Mm, right. So, um, so first of all, what's the price difference? I mean, regular sacrifice versus you know, other rice, is that way more expensive because it's harder to produce? I, w- I would not want to go into numbers, um, honestly, but I will say that the substan- there's a substantial um, difference between the premium sake varieties and what you're familiar with, the table rice, mm. um, just because um, it is very difficult to grow. The yields are significantly less, so you're tying up the same, same amount of land. You're um, requiring significantly more work and you're receiving substantially less um, poundage from that field, um, you know, at the end of the harvest. So um, the price has to be substantially more just to to be at a break even with other, um, right. you know, long grain varieties. And then, of course, um, it's a premium product that we believe, um, you know, necessitates um, some degree of premium. Mm, so this is very exciting because... Um, it's really is going to expand the opportunities of uh, sake brewing in this country because of the price. And also, what's the difference between, say, the texture or any flavor in terms of, you know, the comparison with Carlos and other sake rice? What's, how do you describe somite's taste and flavor? Are we referring to it as a table rice or as a, um, as a sake rice? Oh, oh, you can do both. That's awesome, even. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So I would say that um, when it comes to amylose and stickiness, the soma is going to be less sticky when it comes to a table rice. Um, but when it comes to the sake, I've um, all I can say is that I really enjoyed the one I have. I do not have – I'm not a sommelier. I'm not a um, – I don't have a broad vocabulary when it comes to the nuances of the the different sake varieties um, or or the different tastes that, um, you know, come out of a sake. But I can say it was it was really enjoyable. Perhaps my dad would have more color to add to that. I was I was just really impressed with the. uh, uh, The softness of it, I was expecting something a little more harsh and I'm not I'm not an expert either by any means, but it was fruity and it was soft. And I was not expecting that. I, I was really impressed with it. Mm, wow, interesting. So, um, well, what products um, made with Somai 
um, right now, but available in the market because I haven't tried that. Sure. So first of all, um, if you can make it to Minneapolis and go to Moto E, you absolutely need to visit our friend Blake Richardson's um, Izakaya restaurant and his craft brewery there in downtown Minneapolis. And he's got an excellent product that should be, I got a chance to try it out of the tank before it was released here back a couple months ago while I was up there. So I'm assuming he'll have that on tap before too long. That would be the first place I would point you. Um, I believe that um, Proper Sake out of um, Nashville is making some out of the Somai. And um, Colorado Sake out of Denver is um, creating a number of different um, products using Somai. And there are others as well, um, but I um, can't name an exhaustive list off the top of my head. Right. One thing I, I this may be uh, the, you know, sake one in Oregon. Is it naginata made with the yes. somai? No. no, the naginata would be made from our Yamada Nishiki. Oh, okay. Right. Well, I, I saw the description. That was really amazing too. So, <laughs> okay. Um, well, but that's Yamada Nishiki? Uh, yes. Like, okay. Well, that I just uh, found it. So let me read that because <laughs> I was impressed. So this is not Somai, but Yamada Nishiki made by Isabel Farms. And it's Naginata Junmai Daiginjo from Sakewan in Oregon. And uh, it's uh, Naginata is extremely limited production sake crafted by Brewmaster in Oregon. And the bright, fruity aromas, blueberry, banana, and a grape and ba- uh, balanced by subtle dryness and flavor of Fuji apple, melon, and guava, and hints of pepper and licorice layer in the background, leading to a smooth and lingering finish. That sounds like you really grew amazing rice. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to say that um, you know we we certainly were happy to contribute the rice to that, and um, to whatever degree that contributed to the end product, we're we're grateful for that. But the the um, the toji there. Um, clearly put a lot of hard work and has a lot of knowledge and craft that was able to bring about an excellent project there. And um, I'll let my dad tell, but we actually received the first bottle from his first pressing of that as a gift from them recently. And um, that was, that was pretty, pretty cool. Mm, Right. Yeah. Sake is known for human products too. Like Toji contributes a lot. Takumi. Right. Takumi Kwabara. He's, that's his name. And Steve Velisky. Mark, is that how you pronounce that? But I'm, the... I'm, I'm confident that he'll forgive yeah, us for not being able that. to accurately pronounce his name, but um, <laughs> you know, I'll be happy to um, spell it out for you. So, But um, yeah, the great organization built, making a great sake there. The um, I just wish there was more of it. That's, um, that's something I wish we could get more out there, but it's it's incredible product. Mm, right. Yeah, sake one has a good history to uh, produce sake in this country. So, right. Um, by the way, so Jake Merrick of Sequoia Sake joined us on episode 240 and talked about uh, his new Sequoia rice, which he developed with the US, UC Davis, like um, you worked with. Um, with them. So what do you think of the idea of developing new rice varieties that are suitable for American soil, uh, as you and Jake have done? So um, I've not had the opportunity, as far as I know, to meet, meet Jake. Um, my, my sister, Whitney, and brother-in-law, Jeremy, were out at San Francisco Sake Day back here um, 
I guess it's around the 1st of October, and I believe they had the opportunity to meet him and potentially, I think they visited his um, his brewery as well. So I'm intrigued to hear that he's developed a rice. I don't know much about that. We, don't, we do not work with him um, specifically, but it's always great to get to know others out there who are trying to develop develop the sake rice industry and the sake industry in general and learn what um, what can be done. You know, I think there will always be a place for the traditional varieties, um, the Yamada Nishiki um, being the primary one in that. I think um, there's so much we have to honor and respect about the history of Japanese culture and, and what they've done to create those products um, that we really, first of all, want to focus on um, you know, giving credit to that, continuing to grow that and continuing to provide that product for brewers so that they can build on centuries old histories there of tradition. I do think there's also a place to explore new opportunities. I think that'll always be exciting, but there definitely has to be a balance between what we can do that's new while also honoring that tradition and history. Mm, right. I mean, like when you dwelt uh, so my, there is a strong kind of DNA in that medium grain rice, right? So um, there is always um, opportunity for the plant itself to stay strong and it's just quite easy to grow. So yeah, I I can't wait to see uh, what you're going to develop <laughs> from now on. So, um, but you are very close to the research community and often involved in new projects. So are you working on any new project to develop uh, another new sake rice? Well, as my as my dad mentioned before, he learned to to do um, rice variety development um, many years ago. the The somewhat ironic um, thing is on my part is I'm incredibly allergic to rice pollen. So the time of year that you actually do that sort of thing, I'm not actually able to go out into the field. it's um it's not a very wide window, thankfully, but I'm not able to participate in that um, type of project. so um, you know, he continually works with things like that. Um, we aren't currently working with any researchers to develop um, new varieties. I think um, it's a small enough marketplace that, um, you know, we're not seeing researchers go that direction yet. But, um, you know, we're always open to look at what's next and what we can do to help contribute to the industry by um, working on things like that. Mm, right. And even the... Uh great partner of the sake brewers community. So, and there is um, increasingly more high quality Japanese sake made in America. So what do you think of the future of sake made in America? Um, I'll, I'll let my dad add to this as well, for sure. But I think it's bright. Um, you know, I, I think there's some excellent work being done with the North, North American Sake Brewers Association now in bringing all these um, breweries together and, um, to learn about new things, to just create community. Um, I was able myself to attend, as I mentioned before, my sister and brother-in-law attended Sake Day in, um, in San Francisco. I attended the one in San Diego, and I know there are a number of other celebrations around the United States. It's a growing community, and um, it's a great community to be a part of. It's There's a lot of excitement. There's a lot of fun being had there. And there's this feeling of um, of something new and exciting that I think the customers can really latch on to. 
And so I think the future is bright. I think there's a lot of opportunity and um, we certainly want to be in the position to help um, facilitate the growth of that and to um, partner with any brewers out there that, um, you know, are growing themselves. Right. Yeah, you are. You guys are very important for the community. So, yeah, that's amazing. Um, So one thing I really have to mention, you are very sustainable, Right. So you're pretty committed to sustainable farming. So um, and for example, you are a recipient of the 2016 Community to Quality Award from the American Carbon Registry. So so how do you practice sustainability? So there are a number of things um, that we do on our farm that um, that relate to sustainability. First, first of all, um, you know, dating back to when I was a kid and, and my father and grandfather began trying to make the farm more efficient, they developed the farm in a way that we use as much as um, two-thirds less water than traditional farming methods. And this is done through a process known as zero grade, where the fields are made completely flat. And then over the years, um, building on that, we've been able to um, to create other new or to participate in other um, irrigation techniques, one of which is known as alternate wetting and drying. And um, anyone who's ever been around a rice field knows that it's typically flooded, but in AWD, as we call it, alternate wetting and drying, we allow that to become dry for a period in the summer. Not a very long period, but long enough so that the um, the soil changes its um, biochemistry in such a way that it produces less methane. And so by doing that, we're able to um, minimize the methane creation from that inundated soil by 60 plus percent. And in doing so, um, back in 2016, we were able to create some carbon offsets. And that's not a very lucrative process, but it really um, certainly taught us um, what can be done. And, um, you know, we're, we're grateful for the opportunity to contribute not only to water savings, but also to methane reduction, and we continue to look for ways that we can um, build on that. One of those is um, solar electricity, which we installed three, just over three years ago, I believe, which provides about a third of our electricity here on the farm. And, um, you know, finally, this doesn't encompass everything, but the other thing that really becomes apparent this time of year is the biodiversity that we're able to create through our fields by flooding them in the winter. We happen to be um, just in the middle of the Mississippi flyway for migrating waterfowl. And our fields provide resting areas and places for those ducks and geese to stop over. And fortunately or unfortunately, harvest machinery is not perfect. And so there's always uh, leftover um, grains on the ground for the um, ducks and the geese to, to forage for. And they're all always able to take advantage of those calories as they uh, make their flight further south. So, um, you know, those are just a few of the things. And um, I'm sure my dad has some some thoughts on that, too. Well, I, I like what we're doing with the um, methane uh, reduction. And, uh, you know, for years and years, we've worked on the on trying to reduce our water use and especially our groundwater, our aquifer water. If we can reduce that then we're saving that water for the future for our grandchildren, our grandchildren, and uh, the methane, the solar. Uh, with all those things, we're able we're able to say that our sake rice is uh, carbon neutral. 
Mm. Um, so we could use we can use that, and uh, I I like that. I think that's I think that future is is upon us. Right. Wow. It's even even better. Carbon neutral circuits. So <laughs> that's great. Congratulations. That's a lot of um, research and investment. And I, I I've been really learning. You're always forward minded. So on this end, it's just amazing what you've done about sustainability. Well, thank you. I, I consider myself a little strange, but <laughs> the forward thinking sounds better. Thank you very much. <laughs> it's called pioneering. Um, so what are your plans and dreams? Uh, personally, I want to see our farm to be, be uh, where we can market our, our crops Um I'd like to see where we can market our crops without uh, having to go to the to the normal marketplace to uh, have specialty crops uh, that we can grow on the entire farm and uh, not have to deal with uh, what everybody else deals with. And I, like I said, I want to see my children and grandchildren, you know, have something very special, and and that doesn't just happen I mean that takes years and years and so we're we're kind of looking over the hill uh, a little bit at the horizon to see what's coming and trying to uh, put ourselves in a position to take advantage of that when it gets here if it does get here and if it doesn't it's been it's been good practice so mm. uh, that's that's kind of the way I look at things um, you look you look further into the future maybe than most people try to and see if you can establish yourself in a positive way. Mm, right. Well, especially farming is um, very um, kind of in good way, unpredictable, a lot of technology <laughs> opportunities and climate issues and a lot to conquer, but um, it's very exciting. It's not farming uh, in 50 years ago. And, um, Something is very um, challenging, but very um, interesting field. So, yeah. So, please do keep me posted. And Mark, what is your plans and dreams? Well, I mean, when it comes to to the farm, um, as you mentioned before, farming doesn't look the way it did fifty years ago. Um, there's been a lot of growth and consolidation amongst farms, and they have to get bigger and bigger. Um, in order to be profitable, and that's okay. Um, but my my hope is to um, not necessarily get bigger, but just to become um, better at what we do on the ground that we already manage and to become um, more efficient with that. And so as you've probably learned through this conversation with both of us so far, we're we're not the status quo and we don't really want to do that. And so we don't want to go out and just try to do as much of the same, do, um, try to win the game by, by just doing more, but try to find those good opportunities like working with sake brewers and other specialty markets so that, um, you know, we can, we can do it a different way and, um, it's more fun that way for us. It's not right for everybody, but it's, it's more fun for us. And, um, you know, I really enjoy getting to know and work with um, a lot of the people in the industry, and I want to see more of that take place. And so I want to see us continue to create a farm 
that has resilience um, and that always has, um, you know, hope for something, um, something new and exciting. Mm, right. You really have a unique space in this whole agricultural activities in the whole country. So, yeah, that's very exciting. So please do keep me posted. Something that we Thank haven't you. mentioned is uh, this is a family farm. It's not only myself and Mark, but uh, our son-in-law, Jeremy Jones, and uh, my wife and my nephew, Shane Isabel. And that's the, um, that's the partnership. But we have uh, gotten more involved in social media. And uh, our daughter, Whitney, has come into play there very strongly. <laughs> Grandson, Harrison, our granddaughter, Elena. And um, my wife, um, Mark's wife, Marta, and even the kids did a little a little special thing for Easter, his children. So uh, that is very important to me, that everybody's coming together. Everybody knows what everybody else is doing, even uh, though you're not involved directly on the farm with it. Mm, right. It's a very strong team, I can see. So, yeah, I'm sure your grandchildren and all this whole family are looking ahead because you see the whole um, future, right? They're carrying the future. So We're trying to see it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's so funny. So many sake brewers um, just go out and work with somebody else and come back and they <laughs> solidify the tradition. So maybe that's the, the way, way to go. All right. So where can we find your updates online and on social media? So um, on Instagram, we're at at Isbell Farms. On Twitter, we're at the same, at Isabel Farms. On Facebook, I suppose someone must have beat us to that handle. So I think it's at Isabel Farms Rice. Um, and then YouTube, I believe, is, um, well, you can get there through some of those other platforms. I would go to the Facebook um, page. I believe it's Isabel Farms there as well. So, um, yeah, those, those are our handles. So also our website, um, isabelfarms.com. Yeah, your website is full of resources. And I even I learned about your zero-grade rice farming. It's like very impressive, beautiful scenery. And also you, what you do is very interesting too. So, all right. So thank you so much for joining us, Chris and Mark. Yeah, and Akiko, if I could just add too, um, you're certainly welcome to visit us here at any point. And, um, you know, we've, as my dad mentioned earlier, we've had thousands of visitors through the years and we're always happy to take one or two more. So, um, you know, contact us as, co contact us, and we'll be glad to um, facilitate that. Definitely. Wow. Great. Thank you so much. I look forward to seeing you at the farm. Great. All right, so listeners, if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for show topics or guests, please contact us at japanese.heritageradionetwork.org or akikotema.com. Japanese is a weekly program and always available at heritageradionetwork.org as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. Our engineer is Amin Spenjan, and thank you for listening. I will see you next week. Japan Needs is powered by Simplecast. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. 
for freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thank you for listening.